0: Following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. So it's been raining recently. Have you guys noticed? Like, there's rain now. It's it's hard to think that like a while ago we were all dealing with this drought. It was like 50 days or. Something you guys remember without rain and, I mean, I'm a Pacific Northwest guy through and through, so I prefer a little bit of rain compared to the scorching sun. And my front lawn in particular really appreciates this rainy season that we're in right now. I just remember over the summertime, uh, Summer and I were trying to get our lawn to, to grow and to be healthy. There was like patches. Do you guys have this in your yards? Like patches that grow and patches that don't. And you're like, this doesn't make sense. It was all planted at the same time. So we're like fertilizing, throwing seed, we're watering it all. I mean, our water bill was crazy over the summer. And there was still like this stubborn patch of grass, the front left corner of our front yard that just would not grow no matter what we did. And so I went, because I was a man, and I went to Home Depot and bought this thing called an aerator. You guys know what an aerator is? Some of you do. Well, I didn't know what it was, but it's like this, this spiky metal object that you stab into your grass. And I thought that was a manly thing to buy and to do. And so I'm out in my front yard, like, stabbing. It's like the stomper that you kind of walk in, and my right leg got really tired and numb. But I'm stomping because... This, this patch of dead grass was like this hard soil so that when I was watering it, when I was throwing seed on a fertilizer, nothing would penetrate because it was just laying on top of this hard soil. And so when I'm aerating in the nice areas, it's just like going in like butter, right? It's just like smooth, there's depth there, there's nutrients there. So it goes right into this nice firm soil. But as I go into the hardness, the hard grass, it's like sparking. It's like not, it's not going in, it's just being met with such opposition. And so there's no opportunity for growth unless that soil is churned and penetrated. You get the analogy that I'm kind of throwing out here this morning, it's it's about the depth and the quality of the soil that can bear a crop, that can produce something in our lives. A big part that needs to happen for us as followers of Jesus is to prepare our hearts to respond and to grow in Christ, to allow God's word to penetrate our hearts, to penetrate the hardness of our hearts that can us sometimes, to turn to him through so this thing that we're going to look at today called repentance and to receive what God has for us right now, today, in this opportunity together, aligning ourselves with his will for our life, ready to follow the calling that he has for each of us. For many reasons, for a lot of reasons, a lot of us have, have reasons that we've hardened our hearts toward, toward God whether it's because we've been let down in our minds by God, or maybe there's something that we're frustrated with his timing. We wish he would have produced something for us at this point in our lives by now, but he hasn't. Or maybe, honestly, we just drifted away in our lives. We drifted away by lack of of practice, by lack of discipline, of connecting with him through word, through worship, through meditation, through prayer. So we don't feel that connected to God. We're not hearing from God because our, heart, our hearts are hard toward him. So what we need to do, first of all, is acknowledge that. Acknowledge that we have these dead grass areas in our, in our yard, in our spiritual yard. And we need to do something about it, right? We need to do something about it. And this idea of churning that soil, aerating that soil, prepares us for what God wants to do in us. What we've looked at uh, in the book of Matthew up to this, this point is Matthew has given us kind of two distinct efforts to prepare our hearts. Matthew is writing his gospel in preparation to share it with anyone and everyone who is willing to listen, who is willing to read. And he's written the first three chapters of the Gospel of Matthew with this very specific intention. And Matthew would say, I want everyone, everybody to understand that what you will read, what you will experience and see from this point forward are the words and actions of the living God, God with us, the Messiah, that is Jesus, the one that we'll be reading at after Matthew chapter 3. And so Matthew has spent these first three chapters saying, all right, let's look at Every Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah that was fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Let's point to all the reasons why we could trust in Jesus and why we can trust that Jesus the Messiah, the one that we have been waiting for, the Savior, the Redeemer, God in the flesh, the one that should be followed. And so if you've been here uh, throughout the series for the last three weeks, we started by looking at the genealogy of Jesus. That Jesus came from the line of Abraham. Through you, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. We saw that Jesus came from the line of David. I will establish in you, David, a throne that will last forever. then we saw the birth narrative of Jesus that Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus actually stepped down to dwell with us to be flesh among us that Herod tried to kill him all these things were prophecies that pointed to the Messiah but there's more there was more prophecies about the Messiah the Messiah was going to have a partner in ministry Some of the other prophecies about the Messiah was that there was going to be this forerunner, someone who would go before the Messiah to prepare the way for him, and that's who we'll be looking at today in John the Baptist. So go ahead, if you didn't grab your Bibles already, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, it'll be up on the screen as well. We'll read through it together and kind of walk back through it. Chapter 3, verse 1. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to rise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruits, bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will... Clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So Matthew does something that's very interesting here. Uh, Matthew starts off with the the birth of Jesus, and now we're kind of fast-forwarding thirty years later. That phrase that he starts in verse one: "In those days." That was 30 years later. Those were the days. 30 years later. So Jesus is roughly 30 years old here. And John the Baptist is roughly six months older than Jesus. And John the Baptist began his public ministry at about 30. And so there's a huge gap there. And for some of us, that could be frustrating. We wonder, well, what happened in, that, in those 30 years I don't know if it's because we love stories, we love movies, we love reading fiction, those sorts of things. We love seeing how a person got from point A in their life to point B. We love the success story of how it all came together, but we don't have that here. And so some of us can get a little frustrated. The only story we have is of Jesus as a child or Jesus growing up through adolescence is documented in the Gospel of Luke. We see Jesus going to the temple, and the priests were amazed by how wise Jesus was. The end of Luke 2, verse 52, it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And that's it. That's, that's all we get about growing up in Jesus. And sometimes I wonder, like, did Jesus' voice crack? I mean, what was puberty like for Jesus? All those questions that maybe you asked as well. Yep. <laughs> The thing with Matthew is, you know, Matthew has given us a very specific description of Jesus and the life of Jesus intentionally. He's announcing, this is all about the gospel of Matthew, he's announcing Jesus as the king of kings, announcing Jesus as the Lord of lords, the one who is to be followed, and the one who is the Messiah. So that's the process that he's sharing with each of us. John, in his gospel, uh, wrote in chapter 21, and I think it's It helps us understand why some things are left out and some things are included in all accounts of the gospel. John wrote this in chapter 21, verse 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself cannot contain the books that would be written. I think something is important for us to understand. It's important to understand that God has given us Everything that is needed to understand who Jesus is and that Jesus is the Messiah for everyone. God has, has displayed this incredible picture throughout all of the Gospels, given us this incredible imagery, this display of the life of Jesus, that Jesus was who he is and he can be trusted. And he also shows us through John the Baptist here about who the Messiah is. So let's talk about JTB for a minute here. Uh, if you've read anything about John the Baptist, he kind of has a Portland vibe, right? A little bit of a Portland vibe. Other than the fact that he lived in the desert, I, I get you that. But John the Baptist was in the, lived in the desert. He had this camel hair suit, which I'm sure smelled lovely, with a leather belt. He ate like Bear grills, And there's something else interesting about John the Baptist is he was popular, Like, people wanted to hear from John the Baptist. People went out to hear from John the Baptist. People listened to him. Now, I want you to think, what would it take for you to travel a day and a half to two days to go to the middle of a desert? Like, what would get you to leave your life and everything in your life to drive to northern central Mexico? Like, That would be a journey. And on top of that, to travel that far to listen to some dude dressed in camel hair, like this is what the people of John's day, the Jews from Jerusalem and northern Israel, this is how far they traveled to listen to him. It's kind of a, a strange thing to contextualize or to even imagine, but John's presence. In the desert, had been so disruptive that people were leaving Jerusalem in hordes to hear from him. There were crowds coming out to hear his message, and I want to help you understand why. Because his message was about the coming Messiah, and the Messiah was a pretty big thing. I mean, Jesus is a pretty big deal. The Messiah is the Savior. He's the anointed one. He's the one who those people had been waiting for. All of the promises of God, all the prophecies of God, kept pointing forward to a future time and a future person that was the Messiah. They had been waiting for this. In fact, they had been waiting for over 400 years of time had gone by, asking questions like, when is the Messiah going to come? When will he be here? What will he be like those are the things they were asking, and they were waiting for their Messiah. And one of the things that was going to trigger the Messiah coming is this, this forerunner, the person who had come before the Messiah, prepare the way and share about the Messiah. Uh, we read about it a little bit in Matthew. Matthew's quoting the prophecy in Isaiah. Isaiah 40, verse 3 says this, "'A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord.'" Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The prophet Malachi also prophesied about this in the very last verse of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. One of the things that that Matthew is careful to do and ultimately God is careful to do through Matthew is to really relate John the Baptist to the person and the ministry of Elijah. For time's sake, we won't go there. There's like a whole another seven sermons we could preach about that. If you have time to study it, look at the parallelisms between Elijah and John the Baptist. It's really interesting. But in some ways, hear me, uh, in, in spiritually speaking... It's almost like John the Baptist was the second coming of Elijah. And again, I want to make sure I highlight this and point this out. I said spiritually speaking, not not literally he was. And so we see that too in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. It indicates this as well, that the, the spirit of Elijah was on John the Baptist. We could also see it highlighted in the way that John the Baptist is described as dressing because when you look at 2 Kings 1.8, this is how Elijah dressed. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. Again, that's about Elijah. So in all that, in all that, that context, the reason for it, all of that is to say it's, it's giving us this tone to be prepared in preparation and pointing ahead to the Messiah, preparing the way. What is implied is about the one who's coming. John's not the end of it. He's preparation for someone else. And John the Baptist understood this role. He knew that God had put him there to prepare the way, to pave the way for the Messiah. He knew that he had been filled by the Spirit for this purpose. So all that to say, The people of Israel were greatly awaiting this moment in history. They were anxiously awaiting to hear the voice crying out in the wilderness. So when John the Baptist shows up in the the Jordan River region at that time, he starts preaching this message about the coming Messiah, and people start flooding the area because it's about time. They're ready to hear this message. So let's pause and look at what John's message was. It's a very simple message that Matthew describes just in one sentence there in verse 2. He says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John is speaking here in verse 2 to the Jewish people. These are people that are religious, they would be considered believers. So they're not atheists, they're not serving other gods. These are a category of believers. And they're looking to God and waiting for a Messiah, messiah, so much so that when they hear John's voice, they leave everything in their life to travel a day and a half, two days out into the wilderness to hear from him. And John's message when they get there is to repent. To repent. Sometimes we get it in our minds, in our heads, when we hear repentance. We think that repentance is only needed for that time when we decide to choose Jesus as our Lord and Savior. It's it's only for that point of conversion in our life. So when this message of repent comes, we think, oh yeah, I did that. I already did that. But if you think of repentance as an, oh yeah, I already did that kind of thing that you then you don't understand the fullness of what repentance is. Because repentance is not an I did that kind of thing, but it's an I did that and I am still currently doing that kind of thing. That's a tongue twister like what Andrew was trying to battle through. I have done that and I keep doing that. Here's what repentance is. Repentance is to turn. It's to turn around and go in the opposite direction. Ultimately, this is the same message of repentance that Jesus preached when he began his public ministry. But I think sometimes that term and that phrase and the understanding of repentance can be deceptive because we translate it in our modern culture, modern society to the word stop, right? Just stop, repent, stop. But that's not all that repentance means because if we just stop, we're still looking backwards, at our past actions, looking the wrong direction, looking backwards at the person you once were, not the person who God is calling you to be. Repent could probably be better translated to the word to be converted, because conversion looks both backwards and forwards to where God is leading you. It's looking backwards at your previous actions and looking forward to your future actions. If a bank robber decided to stop robbing banks, he would just be in between jobs, right? But if he was to give back all of the money that he stole, then he would be repenting, right? Repentance is a change in mind that leads to a change in action. That will be on your community group quiz. It's something that (laughs) leads... I see some people grabbing paper now. (laughs) It's something that leads you to a new way of life. It's a ceasing of the old way of life. Our lives through repentance should result in change and new action. And that was the demand of John the Baptist in the wilderness. John was saying, I want you in your hearts to turn from your ways, turn from what you've been thinking, turn from what you've been doing, so much so that you align yourself, point yourself in the direction that God wants for you. I want you in your heart and your spirit to be ready for what God wants to say you and do in you right now, today. Now, is that a message just for non-believers who want to become believers? No, it's, it's a message for all of us, something we're called all to do daily. How many of you enjoy going to the dentist? No one. Oh, two of you. Wow, I was surprised. I already answered before you raised your hands. Yeah, I have a really cool dentist. He's really great. He's a Christian, solid guy. We always talk about church and ministry. He actually supports North and Amanda Katie, our missionaries. So we talk about them all the time, and it's really awesome. But at the same time, I hate him. <laughs> or maybe I don't hate him. I just hate going to see him. It's just the whole teeth-cleaning thing. I don't know what the average rotation, but I'm told that I need to go get my teeth cleaned twice a year. And so I just, like, countdowns every day I wake up, and I'm like, how many days till I get my teeth cleaned again? Because it's like that scraping and the prodding, and they're having a conversation with you as they're stabbing you in your gums, and you're like, seriously, this is terrible. It's like, strap you into a chair. And what I, what I particularly don't like is... The dental hygienists, when they're there sitting in the chair and they're scraping all that junk off of your teeth, they always ask that such judgy question of, how often do you brush your teeth, Trevor? And you're like, well, three times a day and three minutes per time, and I circle like I'm supposed to, and it's like, what is the nature of your question, hygienist? But (laughs) no matter how... How good I am at maintaining my brushing and floss cycle in my life. There's always stuff there. There's always they're scraping, and then what do they do? They, they wipe it off on that nasty cloth or whatever they do with it. I don't know. I don't know. Just once, though, just once, I want to go to the dentist for my teeth cleaning, and I sit down in the chair, and they scrape twice. I'm like, there's nothing here. You could go home right now. You don't have to sit through this hour of torment. But no, every time, there's junk there that builds up over that six months, and then they have to wipe it away. And this is the same thing with repentance. It's that repentance is not about that one-time decision to go clean up your whole entire life, but it's that, that process that throughout our lives, stuff, junk, builds up in our life. Sometimes it's, it's wickedness. Sometimes it's straight sin. We're living against the way of God. We are disobeying him with the way that we're living our lives, our motives, our actions, our thoughts. What we're doing is against God's will for our life. Sometimes it's simply the arrogance of believing that we could do our life on our own, right? The issue of pride is one of the most difficult things that I struggle with, and I'm sure a lot of us, too, if we're honest, cognitively, we understand the gospel. We get that we can't do it on our own, that it's through Christ and Christ alone, that everyone sins and falls short of the glory of God. We understand it, we know it, and yet we still live in our own direction and try to live this life doing what we think is best. It builds up over time. And so repentance is needed because that just layers up in our life. Sometimes we don't even realize it. It's like the dude that goes to the party with something in his teeth, and he's the only person that doesn't see it. Everyone else does. We just don't even realize it, and so we need to work through repentance. Have you ever had one of those moments in your life where God just met you in a wonderful, powerful way? Maybe it was a, a camp situation or a powerful worship experience or a message that you heard preached by this Awesome preacher, or just someone who spoke, it felt like they were talking directly to you. Or maybe it was just like an alone time with you and God in your Bible, and you're sitting there praying and reading through His scripture, and something just hits you deep in your soul and in your spirit. You just feel that connection to God, and you have this incredible experience like you've never felt closer to God than in that moment, in that time in your life. But over time, things fade, right? You don't don't feel that closeness or maybe you've lost interest or maybe you haven't pursued God as desperately as you were before leading up to that moment in your life and so you feel ever so distant from him now compared to that time. It's in those moments of awareness where we feel disconnected or feel like our hearts are beginning to harden toward him that we are to repent and turn ourselves back to God, into alignment with his will for our lives. Yes, the call of repentance is needed for salvation, but that's not what John the Baptist was talking about and doing in this moment. John is taking the aerator, if you will, to the soil of Israel, and he's preparing the soil that when Jesus comes to plant the seed of the kingdom of God, it has a place to be received and to grow And he says the way to get ready for that in your life is to repent. Let's talk about the people who came to see John for a minute. Um, It's 12.02. We're working through this. First, the crowds came out to uh, hear this message. right? The the crowds we talked about from, from Jerusalem and Israel. And they hear this message and they respond by saying yes. And they get baptized in the Jordan River. We read about that. Now we do baptisms here at Canyon Ridge. Ask any staff member, it's like our favorite Sundays is baptism Sundays. And so what we do is we set up the tank over here and people get baptized demonstrating their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus taught us to do that. He said to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we do that. We do that. And it's a huge and important moment in people's faith journeys because it identifies us with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection into this new life that we live with him. And you can read about that in Romans chapter 6. But that's not what John the Baptist is doing here. John had a different baptism. He called it this baptism of repentance. This baptism was symbolizing that a person's heart was ready to receive what God had for them next, this message of the Messiah. So John's out here in the wilderness preaching this, and people are coming to him and saying, yes, I want to be ready for the Messiah. Yes, I want my heart to be turned toward him and ready for that. And so John the Baptist would be baptizing these people in the Jordan River to symbolize this, and many people were doing this. But But John and Matthew here references other types of people that came out to see him in the wilderness. They're described as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Luke in his gospel kind of fills in some of the blanks. And this is essentially a delegation sent from the Sanhedrin, which again is a whole other six messages that we won't go into, but you could read about it. And I just want you to to see that these two people groups here, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these are groups that do not like each other. Like, they wouldn't just hang out unless it was about something like this. They were always constant at each other's throats and fighting and battling. Imagine it's like, I know it's, it's rough, but i got to make one sport reference. It's like the Huskies and Cougars coming together. We're not going to go there, though. <laughs> but, like, they're, they're joining forces to gather intel for a specific reason. Like, there would be arguing or no discussion happening the entire way on this day-and-a-half, two-day journey. But John the Baptist's message was so huge, so incredible, that these two groups laid aside their venom and went together and went out into this wilderness. And as, as we read, John isn't a fan of either one of these groups. As we go through the book of Matthew, we'll see that the Pharisees are the object of a lot of Jesus' judgments against Israel. Just to clue you in, the Pharisees as a group, I mean, they were passionate about the law of God, so much so that some people say that they built fences around the laws so that people couldn't break the laws that support the laws that support the laws of God, right? They were legalists these legalities that everyone had to follow, and they built up so many laws that they forgot why the law was given in the first place, which was to love God and be a relationship with him. So these Pharisees and Sadducees come to see John, and John has a specific message for them. We read it in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. That's a rather harsh greeting. I was thinking about starting my talk this morning with that, but I hadn't given context to it yet. Like, "Good morning, my name's Trevor, are you brood of vipers?" I don't know. Something I had to work that in. Not that I think that of you, but it was just a joke. Uh, many many experts and commentators look at this phrase that John the Baptist used and they they define that that John the Baptist thought that these Pharisees and Sadducees were really, they were spreading poison. That's the reference there, that their message was venomous to the people of Israel, that they were doing damage, they were killing the heart and the spirit of the nation of God. So he calls them a brood of vipers. He goes on, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Instead, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance. John is saying, yeah, you have all these laws, you have all these rituals, you have all these things, but you, Pharisees, Sadducees, you need to demonstrate that your heart, that your heart is turned toward God, not just your words, not just your mannerisms, not just your legalities, but the very heart, the very core of who you are, because if you do, then it will produce fruits in your life to show that you're repentance, and right now, it's not, it's not. And John the Baptist says this, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to rise up, children of Abraham. Sometimes we can kind of fly by this without really understanding the fullness of the statement that John the Baptist makes, but this is a hugely important statement. Israel is believed to be God's chosen people, and rightly so, because God said, you are my chosen people. So you can see where they where they gather that from. But what they took that to is that belief that because they were God's chosen people, that they could do literally anything, literally anything, and that blessing would not be removed from them. It's just in their bloodline. Nothing would ever take it away from them. And here you have John the Baptist, and Jesus will say the same thing, and Paul will say the same thing. In the book of Romans chapter 9, which we read last week in our 20-minute mornings, he said, don't be deceived. It's not your heritage that brings you to God. It's faith. It's about faith. It's about submission to the living God. It's stepping down, as Matt talked about, placing Jesus on the throne of your life and following him. There's this critical moment at some point that we all need to go through where we take our own ownership of our faith, where it's not simply because our parents believed or someone else believed and that's magically passed on to us. But no, we need to decide for ourselves, do I believe the gospel of Jesus and am I willing to stake my life on it? Will I give my life to follow Christ? John Jesus and Paul all communicate this to us. That it's not enough to just say, well, I go to that church or I am part of that family, so therefore all that God has for salvation and blessing is automatically passed on to me as well. I want to read a, a verse from Paul, Romans 9, verse 8. Paul writes on the subject. He writes, This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring John is saying to the Pharisees, what Paul is saying here, that you are not above repentance because you grew up in this, because you are of Abraham. You need to have the same approach as everyone else. You need to come humbly before the living God and ask for his grace. And each and every one of us are to do that. Paul spends Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. Again, there's six more sermons here that's this is like 6, 12, 18 sermons that I've spared you from at this point. But there's Romans 1, 2, and 3, basically the message is for all fall short of the glory of God, right? We've been looking to that, like I said, in 20-minute mornings. But this, this message is what the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't understand in that moment. We're not to presume on our heritage. It needs to be a matter of faith and a matter of submission in each and every one of our hearts today. At some point, we all need to come to that understanding of what it takes to follow Jesus and then decide for ourselves, is this the life we're willing and choosing to live? So Matthew, John the Baptist, continue on here, verse 10. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John's messenger is vibrant. There's a lot of pictures and imagery and metaphors, all this stuff here. I mean, there's this ax by a tree, and there's a winnowing fork, which is like a pitchfork, throwing the wheat, separating the the usefulness from the non-usefulness, the wheat from the chaff. There's fire. It's always exciting (laughs) to read about fire. There's all this stuff happening, and there's these incredible pictures that John is using to try and communicate what the Messiah is ultimately coming to do. And ultimately, what he's coming to do is to bring clarity, to draw that line in the sand, that there are now, there will be people who walk in obedience to the Messiah and those who will walk in rejection to the Messiah, and there's no middle ground. And so John is asking them, and he's asking us today, where will you stand? Where will you stand? Where will you stand as the Messiah prepares to come near to us? It's this incredible moment, this powerful moment This moment where Matthew and John the Baptist are preparing the ground for what we are about to see, read, hear in the life of Jesus. From this point forward in the series, we'll be looking at that as as Jesus enters here at the end of Matthew chapter 3 and Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in the wilderness. And Jesus will be tempted in the desert. And then we get the Sermon on the Mount, chapters of some of the most Incredible teaching that has ever been given, stuff that people throughout the world, even Gandhi, like popular people throughout history, have grabbed sections of the Sermon on the Mount and described how amazing teaching it is. And Matthew is saying to us, we cannot do that and say that this Messiah, Jesus, his teaching is not from God. Look at the first three chapters of Matthew. Matthew wants us to understand that this one who we're about to hear from throughout the rest of the gospel is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And so we cannot ignore this groundwork of the first three chapters because the rest of it comes out of this reality. So here's the question that I have for us as we close this morning. Is the soil of your heart ready for the seeds of the kingdom of God? Is the soil of your heart ready to receive God's word and God's will to be planted in you? When you think about repentance, you hear me just blab on about it for about 35 minutes. When you hear about this, I mean, are there things in your life, attitudes, thoughts, actions, lifestyles that you need to repent of this morning that you need to turn away from to prepare yourself for all the things that God wants to do in you and through you. This is the message of Matthew. This is the message of John the Baptist. This is the message of the gospel. The ground that God, that God does the most work in is the ground of a repentant heart. One that is turned toward him. So how will you respond today to this invitation to repent and prepare your heart yet again for this invitation to follow Jesus today? Today, I want to uh, tell you really quickly on how to do that. This is three points, but they're really fast. Don't worry about it. The Bible doesn't necessarily give us the A, B, C, D, E of how to repent, but it does invite us into this process of repentance, so let's describe what that looks like really quickly. Um, the first one is to come humbly, to be humble. First Peter five says, "God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the first step in repentance, the word to confess our pride before the Lord. In humility, go to the Lord in prayer saying, I have been prideful, I've been stubborn, I've tried to do life my own way, do my own things. I've lived opposing the direction that you have. I mean, it doesn't get much clearer there than that verse that I read, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So if there's pride in your life, keeping you from turning toward God, confess it. And number two, turn away from it today. Confess and turn. Also, there's specific sins In your life, things that you are holding on to, things that are keeping you from embracing all that God has for you, all that he wants to do for you, confess those things and turn away from them. Give them up. Walk away from them and walk toward the one true God. Behaviors, lifestyles, thoughts, emotions, resentment, bitterness, all that stuff that builds up naturally as it does over time. Today is the day to repent of that and turn back toward God. And we're we're to do this continually. Again, this isn't just a one-time thing. It's more than a teeth cleaning, too. It's more than a twice a year thing. But this is a moment right now that we can confess those things before the Lord. Because if we don't, the alternative message of rejecting repentance is, is saying, God, I don't want your grace. God, I don't want what you have for me. I don't want that grace of God. And lastly, number three, repentance is for everyone. I think in this context, uh, in a talk like this, we often play that comparison game in our mind and we think, oh man, my friend Billy or my friend Sally could really use this talk because they are screwed up and they need to repent of their wickedness. We don't think it's ever for ourselves. And I just want to challenge you. The call to repentance is a call to everyone. We're to keep on repenting. Yes, it's important for salvation, but We need to continue to let the Lord do his work in our life. That we're ultimately ready to follow the will of God and what he wants to lead us down the path that he wants to lead us to through the act of repentance. It's this engine, it's this vehicle for continuing to be made into the image of God. So I want to pray for everyone here in just a moment. And before I do, I just want to encourage you To let God work in you this morning. Let the Holy Spirit bring areas of your life to light, things that you are holding on to, and humbly go into his presence in your heart and mind, even right now, and let God work in you this morning. Let's pray. Father, I think as we hear a message like this, it's easy to say, that'd be really good for someone else. Really good for someone else. Father, but I pray that you remind us right now how desperately we need your grace, your mercy, your kindness. That We cannot do this life on our own. We need your grace to carry us. And So I pray for anyone who has a hardened heart toward you this morning. May your love begin to penetrate and to soften to the point that your work could be done in them and through them right now. Holy Spirit, I just ask in this moment. I pray that you do an incredible work in our hearts. That you prepare us for your grace, for all that you have for us. We thank you, God. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.